Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts today. This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Eric Lonergan. Eric Lonergan is co-author of the new book, Angrynomics. His co-author is uh, Mark Blythe, Professor of Economy at Brown University in the US. And, and Eric himself is a fund manager and a public intellectual day by day, becoming one, certainly. So... If I may start, Eric, by, by asking the rather obvious question, fund managers, hedge fund managers, and uh, professors of elite universities don't normally write thought-provoking and accessible paperbacks like Angrynomics. So what was the, the idea behind the book? Well, it's an interesting, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting question because I guess we're a kind of odd combination in some respects. Well, I think, the, to, to be honest, most of the credit goes to Mark. Uh, Mark is, is a really, really interesting uh, political economist, economist, uh, and thinker at Brown University in the U.S. And I think one of the after the financial crisis, in particular, one of the areas that well, he's always had a deep interest in is is what's going on in the financial sector. And we actually met at a conference for macro hedge fund managers, which is not necessarily where you'd expect to find an academic. Um, and we, we just hit it. We just hit up the friendship, um, and that kind of interaction between the insights that you garner in trying to make sense of global markets um, and what he was doing academically, we, we really struck up a friendship and a sort of common sense of purpose. And then we got together uh, in, in, in London. We, we said, let's try and write a book. And, and we were both very time constrained. So we said, let's try and do it as a, as a kind of dialogue. Socratic dialogue is probably a bit, uh, a bit glorious a name. But um, we, so we did it as a dialogue. And then we thought we'll actually try and record it on our phones we got together and sort of put aside two weeks and it started to become quite interesting so that was the sort of the, the, the main genesis okay well let's look into let's get into the nitty-gritty of the book then it, the, the the starting premise is the world is angry you recognize that anger is not a new concept people have been angry for quite some time for different reasons in the past but uh, you seek to analyze uh, anger both in terms of it being a public and private anger and then within the public anger sphere you, you distinguish between what you call tribal anger and, uh, and moral outrage, tribal anger being bad, I'm being very simplistic, obviously, and moral outrage being good. Could you just maybe amplify in much more elegant language than I just used uh, what you mean by all this? Yeah, well, well you've, you've done a pretty good job, Paul, but one of the things that, that I found fascinating, and it was, it was the eureka moment in our discussions, was we decided to, to we were observing anger everywhere, and... It suddenly dawned upon us that anger, everybody knows what anger is. I mean, children know what anger is. Um, so it's universally acknowledged, but nobody understands it. So if I said to you, why do human beings get angry? Which in, in of itself is a fascinating question. I don't think anybody, I've never even heard a considered discussion as to why do we get angry? Um, it's a primitive emotion. What function does it serve? Is there good anger? Is there bad anger? What is it telling us when humans get angry? Um, and also this, this kind of sense of confusion was actually reflected in the literature. You know, we're not psychologists. We're not neuroscientists. Um, we come from a diverse background, as you described. And so we started to read voraciously all of the literature across many, many disciplines on anger and found there's lots of fascinating research, but there's no kind of unifying theory or where there is a unifying theory, it's very disappointing. 
And that actually dates all the way back to Aristotle and in philosophy, which is the idea of moral outrage. So the Greek philosophers thought that anger was somehow an appropriate response to a wrongdoing. And there's a contemporary version of that written by the philosopher Martha Nussbaum. Um, but you're right. So when we started to delve into it, we, we kind of concluded that it has sort of three, four facets to it. There's an anger of angels and there's an anger of devils. And there's a public anger and a private anger. And they're actually very, very different. Very, very different in what they mean to us as human beings, what their significance is, and what their effects are socially. All right, okay. So people have a lot, to be fair, to be angry about. And although your book was uh, clearly written before the pandemic, you do bring it back bang up to date with a, with a postscriptum. Um, so your, your comments, your analysis are even more relevant now than they were before the pandemic hit. For sure. So, so I think what, if I sort of maybe could briefly describe this kind of typology, these types of anger, right. you suddenly start to realize how relevant it is. So the first distinction is between a public and a private anger. And this is really, really interesting. You know, if you stopped an Extinction Rebellion protester, and you, you know, and you sort of say, well, well, why are you angry? It's, it's almost self-evident. And not only that, it's a virtuous anger. In the same way as it's a virtuous anger, people protesting on the streets now about police brutality. Right? Mm. In the public sphere, it can, be, it can be something people are actually proud of. It's, it's required. It's somehow a necessary response. Now, if on the other hand, you had a colleague at work who suddenly starts getting angry and shouting at people, uh, you take them to one side and say, is everything okay? You know, is something gone wrong at home? Uh, are you stressed about something? So in the private sphere, we tend to associate anger with shame. So this is really interesting, this dichotomy, that public anger seems very, very different to private anger. Now then, the other thing, the real change moment for me was actually when we did a data search, a uh, big, big data search using uh, IBM's uh, Watson Analytics. And... We did a big data search of news stories, and we just got the, the machine to just sort of sort out news stories. And the second most common news story that contained anger was sports fans. Mm -hmm. and, like, and you suddenly ask yourself, why do sports fans get angry? Not only that, they pay money to go and watch. You know, I, I used to go and watch. Uh, people won't appreciate this unless you're familiar with British football. But Watford, which is a north of London football team, that you know struggled for a long time, terrible. But they have incredibly passionate fans, and I'd go and watch these fans. And what was fascinating was, first of all, this small minority that I got angry. But another thing that really clicked for me was they're not just angry towards the opposition these angry fans are also regulating their own fans. So fights would break out within the group itself mm. about loyalty and commitment. Right. And that was, so suddenly we realized anger regulates behavior and it does it in this angelic fashion, which is moral outrage. And it does, and there's, but there's the angle of anger of devils, which is about creating tribal identity as preparation for war. And if you look at the history of tribal anger, it is violent. Now, if you can then jump from this picture where we have these sort of three dimensions, we have moral outrage, we have tribal energy, and then which are both public forms of anger, and then we have the private sphere, suddenly our, our, political, our political trends become much clearer to analyze and understand. Yeah, right. and you say, by the way, on private anger, just by definition, it is private, and it manifests itself in anxiety, stress, and uh, worry about uncertainty, right? That's exactly right. So, so as, as kind of political economists or me as a sort of macro analyst, 
Mark and I started to think, um, well, this is a very, very powerful emotion. There's research in political science says angry people are more likely to vote. The fact that, that there's stress and anxiety in people's private lives. The, the fact that we people are struggling to make sense of what's happening politically. Can we use this as a lens to make sense of what's happening? And why now? And that's really what the book is about. And suddenly the lens becomes very revealing. I mean, I think if you want to understand, um, you know, if you, if you study Trump's politics, he, he has a native intelligence to exploit these two types of anger. Um, right. He'll go to the Rust Belt and he will play on moral outrage and grievance. He will say, you haven't been listened to. That's a moral argument that you're voiceless. Uh, he even used the term, I am your voice. Um, he, he then talks about the fact they haven't been listened to, the fact that globalization is depressed wages, the fact that there's been industrial decline. Those are really ethical arguments ultimately. And then he will switch effortlessly to go to a town where there are racial tensions or where there are fears about immigration and stoke this tribal energy. Uh, the problem with this is, is, is that collectively we have to be aware of what's being done, of how we're being manipulated. Because one of these forms of anger needs to be listened to. We, we need to tackle police brutality. We need to tackle racism. We need to tackle inequality. We've seen inequality break out in this COVID uh, pandemic. These are all things that we have to collectively respond to. But we need to be very, very careful of the media and the political system and the political elites and politicians using identity and tribal rage effectively to motivate electoral support and manipulate us. Right. When you, you do say in your book, we have, you have to find a way to harness moral outrage. But before we get there, I mean, to be fair, as I was saying earlier, and you say in your book, people have a lot to be, to be angry about. I mean, you mentioned that the UK economy doubled in size from 1980 to 2017. Over the same period, use of food banks increased 1,000%. I mean, people could be really annoyed by that. Uh, much of the developed world, I keep quoting your book, inequality rose throughout the 1980s and 1990s, dipped for a decade, and then shot up again after the financial crisis. So people are, are justified in being angry. Well, I think that's right. I think, I think you know, as an economist, one of the struggles um, in making sense of the world um, and, and both the stress and anxiety that people f clearly feel um, in their personal and private lives. I mean, the other area, if you look at, for example, is the, the huge epidemic that's occurring in mental health. Um, and that is not a phenomenon that's to do with measurement that we weren't measuring it before. It looks genuinely um, to be a, 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 a new problem that we have as even in developed wealthy societies. So we have lots and lots of evidence that despite what most, pe most economists would have used as the metrics for economic well-being, GDP per capita and the unemployment rate, the inflation rate, interest rates, in some sense in the last decades, we've been relatively successful, depending what geography you're in, in, in dealing with a lot of those matters, but it doesn't appear to have, to have changed people's lives in the positive way that would have been expected if, if you read people who were talking about it back then. And so we started to consider that there have been the effects of the market economy on the uncertainty that it's created in people's lives, the effects of technology on people's lives that are creating this anxiety and stress. And, and also I think mo very importantly, um, there's a vacuum politically. Mm -hmm. So when people say we want to have a centrist party, I go, well, what do they stand for? What policies do you have? And, and, and this is another very important theme in the book is I think in a sense, the political landscape that many of us grew up used to, which was a kind of 
of Cold War idea, whether it was the state versus the market, there were very clear political identities that motivated people. We actually lost that political identity as there was this move towards the center. And so you get falling participation rates in elections and a loss of political motivation. And that's what sort of created this vacuum that tribalists are able to capitalize upon. Okay, I want to come back in a moment about politics and the old center-left uh, uh, labels that you claim are no longer valid. But before that, Eric, I'd like to talk a bit about more about, about economics and capitalism. Um, again, it's the link there is with inequality. The distribution of wealth has not just become extreme, you say, uh, but politics has become the playground of those with vast wealth. Billionaires, I'm still quoting, spend millions protecting their interests or supporting their personal after often eccentric agendas, such as secretive hedge fund managers bankrolling the Brexit campaign. Well, you're a hedge fund manager. I think you're not particularly secretive, but that's quite a bold statement coming from your, the world and where you work in. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, to be honest, I mean, ultimately, my, my sort of personal circumstances are, are really ultimately quite trivial. Um, but there's no doubt if we look at it statistically, there's been an extraordinary concentration of wealth. Um, and, you know, if, if uh, this was covered in, I think, the last vote, the book by, by Philip Coggan very brilliantly, is I, I think there is no doubt a, a loss of a sense of legitimacy that, you know, and all you have to do is go onto YouTube and listen to Dominic Cummings' speech, I think it's to the IPPR. Um, he's very, very open um, about the Brexit campaign. Yeah. And the fascinating uh, explanation of, of what his objectives were, uh, both highly intelligent and full of bizarre contradictions. So he will simultaneously say that he, you know, he got engaged because a billionaire hedge fund gave him a phone call and said, come on, help us to run this campaign. He claims that it's a sort of democratic response to what the population wants, and yet uh, the campaign strategy has got, is, is, is not about Europe, and he's very open about that. He says trade in Europe is far too complicated for the population population and the population doesn't care about it, so we'll make it about something else. That's a very bizarre perception of democracy. But, and, and funnily enough, I think it actually represents precisely what's become wrong with democratic process. And ironically, the very, the very rejection of politics uh, that he's trying to exploit um, is, is, is in no small part a rejection precisely because of that type of manipulation of, of, of collective belief. But th there is a deeper failure here, though, which I think spans is for all of us as, as public intellectuals or beyond that, as people who care about the society that we live in, is that is, there's been a huge failure of ideas. I mean, I think that is first and foremost the failure. You know, the big debate, the big political debates are ultimately about ideas that people care about and you need solutions. And that's the other thing we've tried to do in the book, as we've said, there's no point in just hand-wringing about uh, inequality or coming up with ideas like a global wealth tax, which are totally impractical. Um, but we do need to tackle these issues. We really need creative solutions to make, you know, environmental change something that gets people out to vote. Yeah. Tackling inequality, you need to motivate people to vote. Um, so we need an honest, ideas-driven politics that also captures one's sense of, of moral motivation. And yet, but, but that's quite, that is a big ambitious task, and I still don't think it's there. Um, right. That's the real problem. Uh, that politics faces at the moment. Yeah, I, we are going to come more, I promise, <laughs> on, on politics 100%. But before we do that, I'm going to tell you a bit more, because you come out with these kind of yeah. 
slightly kind of off-the-cuff comments, which are more maybe uh, more impactful because they're so, so casually phrased. We think of capitalism, I'm quoting again, as a computer that has just had a massive crash. You say um, over the same period of, of, uh, of all this inequality, uh, global corporations simply stopped paying taxes. I mean, uh, okay, but so how does, how does one harness moral outrage to address the issue of maybe of corporations not paying taxes? For sure. I mean, if you look at corporate tax rates, I mean, I was quite astonished, actually, when I was looking at, very, very interestingly, I was looking at some uh, policy ideas, uh, you know, in contacts that I've, I've been having with, uh, with the Treasury and the Bank of England in the UK in response to, to some of the, the, the COVID uh, policy responses. Uh, and one of the things I recommended to them was effectively that you do tax rebates for uh, companies up to a certain size. So you could simply just rebate their revenues. Um, and what, of course, is interesting is, is that when you just look at tax rebates, is, is the corporate sector pays a relatively small share of, of GDP. It's actually not that expensive um, to rebate the corporate sector on its taxes. Um, so, but look, the thing is, one has to be, be smart about these sorts of things, because you're right, it's very difficult to get young people to vote simply by, you know, making an argument that the corporate tax rate should go from X percent to X percent plus five. Um, and, and so I think, um, but, but I think that it's, it's indicative of a broader sense that one of the consequences of the Cold War or the post-Cold War political consensus was a kind of naive view of markets and we need a much more nuanced view. And I think there is a very strong trend globally towards a change in corporate governance, taking into account uh, environmental and social objectives, that the corporate sector needs to become a much better corporate citizen. And I think tax rates are part of that, but there are also clever solutions. Um, so again, we, we, can, we can talk about this now or come back to it, but one of our ideas here is that, in a sense, you, you care less about corporate tax rates uh, if you're participating as a shareholder. And so one of the ideas that we want to try and do is broaden the ownership of assets in a very creative way using the state's balance sheet. And, and Because I think part of the problem that politics has had is, you know, we've seen this in, in various parts of, both of, of the left, particularly in the UK and also in the United States, but also in Europe, is a kind of a sense that it's just a reversion to the 70s. And I think what we really need is we need innovation and we need in, innovation in our institutional structures right. and in our right. policies. It's not the focus of your book per se, but this idea of, uh, which some cynics might call an oxymoron, but compassionate capitalism, uh, even before the and- uh, pandemic, to be fair, there were clear signs that some corporations were showing more kind of corporate social responsibility, to use that very old-fashioned phrase, and, and being much more cognizant of the need to, to, to be aware of the environment, social uh, impact of their, of their work and their operations, uh, not just saying it's the shareholder who comes first. Do you think that is a, a, a real trend that will now develop and magnify, certainly on the back of the pandemic, or, or not? Uh, you know, I don't like slogans like compassionate capitalism. I, I think there's naivety about capitalism and markets, uh, both on the left and on the right. Um, so, so the right very often talk about market outcomes as if they're somehow fair and ethically driven. They're not. I mean, markets uh, don't have um, beliefs and values. Uh, right. Markets price things, um, and they don't price. They don't just. They don't price on the basis that uh, a nurse is more committed in creating more value 
than somebody who, you know, restructures the balance sheet of some company and is lucky, right? <laughs> Markets yeah. don't care. They will reward one spectacularly and the other uh, pretty close to, to, to median or average, right? Yeah. So the market outcomes are not based on ethical principles, right? I mean, it's utterly naive to think that. At the same time, frequently, the left is naive about how powerful and extraordinary markets are. Um, so markets can solve problems that we have singularly failed to do from a central standpoint. So I'm a big believer that one needs to, one needs to harness, and that's part of the, the policy message here, is about using state intervention, the state's balance sheet, incentive structures through monetary and fiscal policy to harness the profoundly beneficial forces that you can bring out of the market. Now, the other point is, is that everybody's a human being. So the, the reality is in the corporate sector, it's not like you have these you know, evil corporate bosses who just want to make money for shareholders. You know, they have families, they live in communities, they have children, they, 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 they want to look back and be proud of what they've done or they haven't done. So I think there's a social move, there's a cultural shift, particularly post the financial crisis, that wants to address this. But of course, one can't be naive. You know, this has to come via transparency. It has to come through scrutiny. That's why, you know, one of these ideas that we have of creating a kind of national wealth fund, and I also think this is something that's part of the COVID policy response with government taking equity stakes, um, is I think we, we do need to create strategic shareholders that well, address... Let me interrupt you because you're jumping ahead a, a tiny bit, uh, Eric. I mean, this National Wealth Fund, um, just step back a bit for our listeners, your book, who haven't read your book yet, it is not just a book of analysis and dissecting the symptoms of what, what we're facing at the moment. You do have a number of very interesting and very uh, imaginative and innovative uh, policy prescriptions, including this idea of a National Wealth Fund. So why do you, now, uh, Tim Duffy, why do you explain to our listeners what this thing would entail? Okay, so the simple observation is that where the, the role that, that, that inequality has played in causing us a problem is less clear to me than the role dealing with inequality can play in, in solving our problem. So I, I, I think if we stand back and look at our societies and we go, depending where you are, even in the developed world, 20 to 80% of the population don't have significant ownership of assets. Right. Um, and yet, and you have a huge concentration of assets in a tiny number of people. That is not a well-functioning society. So how can we address it? We do address it to some extent via the tax system, but you still have huge unfairnesses. So it's, the whole concept of inheritance is, is kind of unjustified. It can't be justified that you, know, you inherit something because you haven't earned it, somebody else has. So in no ethical system is inheritance really justified. And yet, so an inheritance kind of perpetuates the inequality of wealth and is extremely difficult to tackle politically. So you won't get any politician saying what I've just said, because right? yeah. <laughs> they'll immediately use it. So, so can we deal with this? And the idea that we've come is that um, we're actually incredibly fortunate as societies at the moment. And this is the most understood economic feature of our economies, which is that we have is the government for, for a series of complex reasons that maybe we can come back to, but we don't need to know the reasons. The government is being paid by markets and by savers in our societies to borrow at the moment. Okay? Now, there's a very simple way of harnessing that power. If you look, for example, at Norway is a very good example. We have these examples of these sovereign wealth funds, they're called. Now, Norway ran big surpluses generated by its, its oil exports. 
And it decided rather than spending all of that money that it would save all of this money and invest it. The Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is now one of the biggest investors in the world, has generated more than 50% of its capital is due to its returns. It's generated returns of 6%. Now think of the UK. Let's say the UK issues government bonds for, for 30 years at a, at a negative, and it's being paid by the market effectively to issue that debt. And it can invest those. It, it sets up an entity um, given that the UK is one of the leading financial centers in the world through London, you have a, a well-regulated with an independent board, proper oversight. You give them a 20-year investment return horizon, and you say generate a 4 to 6% return. That is very, very doable. Okay? We, you can do that at virtually no cost through a diversified global portfolio. Mathematically, what that means is in 15 to 20 years, you'll be able to repay all of the debt. And you have created wealth. And you could do that for 10 or 15% of GDP. Now, what I would do is I would do that. You could do that in six months in the United Kingdom. And you could distribute ownership of that wealth fund to 80% of the population or 20% of population or whatever you deem to be the most effective and the most effective. Now, you haven't raised a single penny of taxes. So there's absolutely no reason why that can't have cross-party support be done very, very quickly and dramatically change both people's genuine ownership of the asset base and also people's perception of what their, you know, what their future entails um, and their view of, of, of what the system is delivering for them. So that's one example of an innovative original policy, which I think is, is very, very robust to analysis. It's you know, an arithmetic fact um, that this would occur. We have lots of evidence. If you look at sovereign wealth funds like the Norwegians, if you look at um, endowments like the Wellcome Trust in the UK, and not only that, these stakeholders, which many of them already are as investors, this comes back to the question you were asked about changing corporate behavior. Mm -hmm. Sovereign wealth funds are doing that right. because they're, they're big shareholders. They have to be listened to. They publicize their results. So they can you know, increase a focus on the long-term on environmental impact, on social responsibility, on all of these issues as well. Right. Well, I promise we'll finish off on politics, which is in a minute, but not just yet, Eric. Before we get to the politics, because uh, I'm fascinated by your, by your arguments uh, as anybody else, uh, this other idea you have in the book about what you call a data dividend, uh, requiring the big tech companies to, to pay us for the use of our private data. Could you go into more detail on how that would work? Yeah, I mean, this is probably the one of our proposals that I think will need need needs more work. Um, so there's broadly there's 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 four types of proposals that we have. We have one proposal about ending recessions, and again, COVID has brought this into stark relief. Um, we think recessions are a huge uh, scar on our societies, and we need much cleverer policies that are much fairer and much more effective. And we outline those. We we think we need. A, a dramatic change in our capital base that is more sustainable and environmentally friendly. And we think we can do that via a system of dual interest rates. That could be supercharged, right? So my main problem, in a sense, with the environmental movement currently is we're not nearly ambitious enough. We could do way more. It's not zero sum, it's positive sum. And, and we have ideas to do that. And then the other issue relates to technology and the, we've spoken about the, the wealth fund. The other, the other issue relates to the technology sector. Well, the fascinating thing here is, is a, goes back to the ownership of data, is these businesses are very, very interesting because they have monopolistic tendencies. And yet, to some extent, we collectively own them. 
Because if you look at businesses like Facebook or, or like, like Google, these big, big data businesses, as they are increasingly becoming, um, effectively rely on us giving them their data. And so is there, we sh if we think about any form of monopoly, and I think these are monopolies in the same way that like a language is a monopoly. Languages tend to monopolies. Um, we need clever ways about thinking about ownership. In the same way, for example, if you, if you remember in the telecom sector with mobile licenses, um, because there's this sort of a finite degree of spectrum, we would auction a mobile license. I don't see why we can't have auctions, in a sense, for our collective data. Mm -hmm. um, and that then becomes a way to deal with this whole, these very creative and interesting ideas around a basic income. But this isn't about the state giving me something for nothing. This is simply about me exercising my property rights. You say in the book that the, the left and the right are bereft of ideas. A return to the econo economics of state ownership of the 70s or an attempt to ape city-states like Singapore are to us obvious dead ends. The center as it's been constructed for the past 50 years, can no longer hold. But he, he then goes on to say that the good news is that the acceptance of a new set of innovative policies that takes politics beyond its traditional left and right boundaries is emerging. You'll have to unpack that for me. So where do we stand? Traditional parties are now going to become increasingly uh, a thing of the past. Well, the party structure I don't know about, but, but, but I'm... I'm I guess I, I firmly believe that constructive policy uh, or constructive politics at its core have ideas um, and ultimately have policies about how you change society. And, and that is the real failing. So I find a lot of people, a lot of discussion at the center is all about, oh, we need to have you know, more centrist policies. What's happened? Our, pol our, our parties have all been hijacked by extremists. When the real problem is, is that there, there, there are not obvious solutions and answers. We have not equipped people with a set of ideas that will motivate them politically. Um, and what's happened is, if in the absence of motivating political ideas, the, the terrain will be grabbed by tribalists. I mean, this is the oldest form of motivation. If you look at the, the literature um, in, 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 in social psychology about the children's propensity to form groups, it's absolutely arbitrary. You can literally say, I'm going to divide this room into who likes red and who likes yellow. And, the, and, and group red will become aligned and tribal versus group yellow. And that is for uh, an entirely homogenous community. Um, so, so this is the oldest human instinct, one of the most dangerous human instincts. And that's where our politics is currently headed. And that's what I mean really about this vacuum of ideas. So what we're saying is we don't care where you think you've sat on the political spectrum. Um, it's self-evident to us all, I think, to all reasonable people that we need to address inequality. It's self-evident that we need to support our, our, our planet's survival. Um, and it's self-evident that recessions cause intense human misery, and we're going to experience that again. So we need to tackle recessions, inequality, and the environment. Let's have some clear, effective ways of addressing them, not technocratic odd ideas. We want really, really clear ideas that can genuinely tackle these issues quickly. That's the kind of intellectual challenge. And we think those ideas exist now. And not only do the ideas exist, there is a kind of groundswell of, of opinion, you know, the kind of silent majority that is waiting 
to, to, to give voice to those ideas. And, and that, that's ultimately where, you know, the, the political system has to respond on the job of people like me, Mark, and yourself is to get behind these ideas, convince people, convince the political class, um, and ultimately see them translated. Okay. Well, we have to leave it there, Eric. Um, Angrynomics is out now. And Eric Nunnigan, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul.